the Missional Life Podcast, inspiring kingdom-minded believers around the world to live the mission of God in their lives. All right, welcome back to the Missional Life. We are excited. We've got a great show for you guys today. We are excited to have the host of the Lucas Miles Show, the author of Good God, the one we want to believe in but are afraid to embrace. He's been featured in the Christian Post, Bible Gateway, on Faithwire, CBN, Fox News, The Blaze. He produces Hollywood films as well as plants churches around the world. In addition to all that, he's a personal friend of ours and has been very, very influential in our ministry journey. So welcome to the show, Lucas welcome. Miles. Hey, it, it is an honor and I'm, uh, it's, it's really great to see both of you and and uh, it's it's been a while, so I, I feel like between you know COVID and everything, just the distance there, it's it's uh, it's great seeing both of you, and I appreciate the time. Absolutely, we are excited to hear more about your new book called "The Christian Left." But before we get to that, take us back, because you know when we're doing this introduction, there's there's a lot there. There's a lot there, and I know God is using you in so many different spaces, and we want to hear about those, but. How did God first begin to get a hold of your heart? How did he begin to plant that mission into your heart? Take us back to the start a little bit and take it and bring us forward. Yeah. So obviously I, I wear a couple different hats between, you know, author, filmmaker, pastor. Um, and I always joke that, you know, if I'm on an airplane and somebody asks me what I do, um, I, it usually depends on if I want to sleep or not on the flight on what I tell them. <laughs> and so if, if I'm tired, and I want to sleep. I usually tell them I'm a pastor because they stop asking me questions. <laughs> after that. <laughs> but if I, if I, if I feel like talking or I feel like there's an opportunity there that I, I usually tell them I'm in, you know, I'm in the entertainment business and then it usually gets to the fact that I'm a pastor. But, um, you know, it, it, for me, I mean, I started preaching, I think I preached my first message at 17. Um, and actually it was my, my freshman year of high school, I was at a youth event and I don't tell this story super often, but, um, I was at a youth event and there, it was a, it was a Wednesday night and there was a speaker and his name was, his name was pastor Mike and he was from Illinois and it was a very impactful guy in my life. I didn't know him really personally. I think I ended up meeting him once, uh, maybe a couple of years after that I was able to kind of share part of this with him. But, um, he had preached a message and at the end of his message, you know, he was the keynote speaker. There's probably 1200 students at this thing. And, you know, I'd grown up in the church, had been around, you know, um, you know, really kind of Christianity and in a Christian home my whole life. But um, I don't know as though I'd ever really had a moment where I felt like I equivocally like heard or unequivocally heard God speak, you know, that, that, that I knew for a fact it was him. And so um, while during his message at the very end, he says, Hey, I want to, I want to, you know, kind of go to the Lord right now. And I want you just to ask him to give you a name of somebody that needs to hear from him right now. And, you know, when you get home, call that person and you just ask him if there's anything you can pray for them about. And, you know, just kind of a simple exercise of like hearing from Lord, from the Lord and like an element of evangelism or kind of outreach. And, and so I'm getting ready to pray. And, you know, I'm a freshman in high school. Like I'm pretty much scared of girls at that time. And, and, uh, um, you know, it, there was a girl's name that popped in my head and I, it just, I heard it so clearly and I didn't know her super well. We had a class together, um, and, you know, had a couple mutual friends, but never really kind of crossed paths at all. And so I got home and I, I was, I was just kind of touched by that message and, you know, was kind of on fire coming back from this youth conference. And I, I called her up probably the Saturday I got back and, and, uh, and I, 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 I called her and I said, Hey, this is, I don't know if you remember who I am or not, but this is Lucas miles. You know, we had a class together and this is going to seem weird, but like I was at this thing and there was this pastor and he said to think of somebody and your name popped in my head. You know, I'm just kind of stumbling through this whole deal. And I, I just want to know if there's anything I could pray for you about, you know? So here I am 15 years old or whatever. And she just starts weeping. And I'm like, what did I do? And I never want to do this again. Aww. You know, I mean, it was just like, I just broke something. And, and I go, what's, what's going on? And she goes, what day was that? 
And I said, well, it was, it was Wednesday. And she starts crying even more. And she goes, what time? And I said, I don't know. It was, you know, it was 830 or whatever time it was. And I said, why? And she goes, we got to call at 830 on Wednesday night that my brother jumped off of one of the bridges in San Francisco and killed himself. Mm. And, and she was like, how did you know that? I'm like, I didn't know that at all. You know, like this, and I don't, you know, it's funny. I don't remember how the conversation went after that. You know, we ended up, I ended up, I did meet up with her and was able to share and talk. And it, it was years later, I think, um, uh, you know, probably five years after that, that I ended up baptizing this girl, um, in, uh, in, in kind of a, a, a lake near, near where we lived and had the opportunity to share with her even more and, you know, still periodically talk with her today. But, you know, beyond even the transformation in her life, that experience taught me that God speaks mm -hmm. and that we can hear from him. And, you know, I'd like to say that every time I hear from the Lord, it has that sort of impact. But, you know, I, it, it just, it, it's just that reminder that he's good, that he loves us, and that he's really working on behalf of so many on the whole world to really create opportunities for us to hear from him. And so that inspired me, you know, kind of a long version to this, uh, long answer to this question, but that really inspired me to go into ministry. I, that was that week that I really felt a call into the ministry and felt like this was going to be my life's mission. You know, I thought I'd be a youth pastor. I didn't have any sort of vision beyond, you know, kind of what local church looked like. I certainly wasn't any sort of apostolic, you know, voice for the church. Uh, but that's really what got me started on this path. And, and you know, at least a part of what's responsible for me being here today. Wow. I love that. I just love that one, you know, you heard the word of God that night and two, that you heard distinctly someone's name to speak to and acting in obedience to that, even in the face of fear. Yeah. So, and just that it changed her life and impacted yours as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I appreciate that. And yeah, definitely feel the same. And that's kind of been your message, really. Uh, you know, you wrote a book about it, that good God, that you you inherently believe God is good and that he's acting on behalf of his people. Can you share a little bit more about that? Because I think that's still, you know, people are still unsettled about that. Not people that don't have an intimate relationship with, with Jesus sometimes are, are a little bit uh, on the fence on what they how they really feel about that. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting. I I've oftentimes feel like I find myself in, in, in a place that is, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, this to sound like I'm, I'm reaching for sympathy here, but that's rather lonely theologically hmm. in that um, there's certainly no shortage of Christians that um, maybe lean a little bit more uh, legalistic or, or, um, uh, you know, traditional, for lack of a better term, uh, in their faith and their view of God, uh, they tend to hold to a really extreme sovereignty version that everything that happens is God's will. You know, we, we, there's little synergy between man's efforts, you know, and, and what God does. It's, it's mostly just God bringing about his purposes. You know, we see that, you know, I mean, a lot of Christian music and Christian literature kind of pushes in that direction. Um, and then we have, obviously, on the other side, we have, uh, and this really kind of plays into this new book, we have this other extreme that's developed of, of sort of the use of, you know, certain Christian terms and ideology, but a real kind of total discount of scripture and, and, and sort of this, this very liberal version of Christianity that's out there today. I'm somebody who believes that God is good, that he wants the best, you know, he wants his best for his people. He loves us. But that there's just still a thing called personal responsibility. There's still a thing called right and wrong. There's still a thing called morality. Um, and that man plays a real synergistic role in, in this life that we, you know, just like God gave Moses the choice of, you know, choose blessing or curses, choose life or death. We have that same choice today. And so, you know, Good God, that, that book was really, which, you know, I'm so thankful for, that book really opened up a lot of doors for me and, and really created the opportunity for me to do my podcast show and so many other things. And, 
that that book is really I, I, I kind of jokingly say it's PR for God. It's showing God. It's showing the world that God is not the one behind kind of the tragedies of this world, that he is not causing bad things to happen to try to bring good out of them, that, yes, bad things do happen and God does bring good out of them. But he is not really he's not allowing or causing that in this greater sense that. And and so I sort of break that down and it's a really counter um cultural message within if you spend any time in the Christian world, although I think it is very biblical. And I really tried in that book to have something that, you know, would would really take into account a biblical view of God and help people understand God's grace and how the gospel works in a much in a much uh, uh, clearer light than maybe what they get through, you know, typical religion. Um, but it's it's been a tough message for people. And I, I wish that more people had really embraced or have embraced that that uh, uh, the teaching that God is not responsible for our pain, but there's something I think inherent in, in a lot of religious people that they need somebody to blame. And it's really easy for that to be God. And, and so that, that book was uh, um, certainly controversial in some ways, but I really wish it, I feel like it shouldn't be because I think it's very, you know, on point with, with a scriptural understanding. Yeah. So that's been your message though. It really is, is, is a, a, that God is good, that he is for us. He is, you know, he, he does want good things for his kids. Um, and you, you try to communicate that through different means. You know, you've written in, you've written books, you've written uh, articles, you've been featured on, on TV stations, you produce movies. You really have this theme. You have this message that you want to share, uh, uh, into, into the world. But at the same time, the world has changed in, you know, in, in the last year or, or two exponentially. And I feel like this new book, The Christian Left, is really, really a very timely piece because there's a lot going on in the world, a lot, a lot is changing. And so can you tell us, you know, for those of us who don't really know um, as specifically as you, what, how would you describe The Christian Left? Yeah, I think the Christian left is maybe best understood as sort of a growing constituency of um, Christians or in some cases so-called Christians that have been deeply impacted by progressive ideology, by leftist politics, by Marxist theory um, and, and, you know, uh, liberal theology, and that they have really embraced a sort of new, uh, you know, neo-Christianity that um, from the outside looks very similar to the historic biblical version of Christianity that we've seen in church history for the last 2,000 years. But when you really dive into it, it has almost nothing in common with it. Mm -hmm. and, and so, and it's amazing. In the past, these individuals were mostly isolated in academic circles. You know, um, they were, they were theology professors, they were, uh, you know, linguists, they were, um, they were maybe, uh, you know, uh, higher level, you know, deans or professors at Christian institutions. Um, and, and it was mostly in, in, in just that academic world over time, you know, in the last few decades, um, that influence has begun to trickle down, I think, into our pulpits. And ultimately, it's starting to trickle down into the pews of the church. And we're seeing, I think, many people kind of unsuspectingly like be influenced and hijacked, um, have their faith hijacked by this, this leftist, progressive form of Christianity that oftentimes the layperson doesn't even know that they've stumbled into it. They just hear it from the pulpit and they take it as Bible and and they aren't fully equipped to really be able to discern that yet. And so that's really why I wrote this book. And I want to obviously identify the problem, but also to provide a roadmap uh, for Christians to be able to um, uh, really find their way back to uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, to the to the Lordship of Jesus, and 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 you know to really see the church, you know, to be able to heal and and be protected, you know, from this attack. Mm -hmm. That's so good. That's so, so good. However, you know, you threw out a lot of terms there, you know, progressive theology, biblical Christianity, you know, I heard neo-positive Christianity. Tell us a little bit, how would you make that distinction between progressive theology and biblical Christianity? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm, 
I, I studied philosophy and religion in, in, in college. And that was kind of my, my background. I certainly, you know, love to geek out on that stuff, but I think that in a way that, you know, somebody that doesn't, maybe they have to know, you know, centuries of, of philosophical thought, um, you know, really over the last several hundred years. And ultimately we could, we could go back even further than that, because I think you see instances of this in the new Testament with some of the Gnostic, um, thought that Paul was con confronting in, in some of the epistles. And even after that, in early, you know, years of church history, there was, uh, um, you know, uh, certain leaders, uh, origin was one of the, the early church fathers that he was teaching things like, um, you know, God is so good that even Satan gets redeemed and that there's no such thing as hell. And, and some of these kind of extreme, you know, concepts and, and was deemed, you know, heretical at that time. Uh, and I think, and I think rightly so, and not to say that everything that he taught was wrong, but I think that, you know, on those issues, it certainly was. Um, so in more recent years, there has, has been a real fascination with, um, secular humanism with, um, you know, uh, trying to mix Christianity with some of these in vogue, you know, um, uh, philosophies of the day. You know, we in the Catholic Church, you see, um, and I'm, I'm a person who has, a, I, I love Catholic Church history. I, I just read like 2000 pages of Augustine this last year. I'm in South Bend. It's one of the most Catholic cities in America, besides probably Boston. Um, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a real revival among a lot of Catholics in their uh, standing up for pro-life issues and kind of returning to scripture and these things, which I'm excited about. Um, but, you know, if you look at it, at, uh, you know, kind of sex of the Catholic church or divisions of the Catholic church, uh, you know, this, this thing called liberation theology would be a great example. Liberation theology is a South American, uh, uh, sort of variant of Catholicism that mixed Marxist theory with Catholic church teaching. And so it, it essentially stated that, um, you know, instead of just serving the poor, that there's actually a blessing on being poor and that by helping to keep people in poverty, we are doing the work of God. And, and so we don't want to actually provide for their needs so much so that it takes them out of this place of poverty where God can bless them the most. Now, of course, all the people that hold this philosophy are, you know, elites and wealthy and everything else. And just looking down at these, you know, the poor from their, their ivory uh, uh, cathedrals and oftentimes, but, you know, so that's a more modern example that we've seen rise up in, in the last, you know, several, uh, several decades. I think that also like in our, you know, maybe to put this in more of the common church person's term, you know, what we saw happen here was a progression from, we first had the seeker sensitive movement. And there's a lot of great things that happened in the seeker-sensitive movement. A lot of people got saved, churches grew, um, you know, a lot of outreach, you know, and you had the the Willow Creeks and the, um, uh, um, you know, uh, Rick Warren's church in California and, and you know, other places that really just, they did a lot of great work for the kingdom. Um, the, the, the challenge with the seeker-sensitive uh, movement is in order to make the gospel more palatable, there were certain things that I think that those leaders felt had to be removed in order for the services to be a little smoother. And it's, I, I compare it to genetically engineered fruit. You know, if I'm going to, if you're going to eat an orange, you know, do you want to eat an orange with seeds or do you want to eat a seedless orange? And, you know, the answer is always the seedless orange is better. Why? Because it's easier to peel. You don't have to spit on any seeds. You don't risk choking on anything. It's not as messy. And the, the one with seeds in it is always messy. You know, you're not, you know, you got all these noises that you make with your mouth and, you know, you're spitting seeds out and everything else. And so now, but the question is, which one is capable of reproducing itself? The, the, the seedless orange is, is clean to eat, but it's, it can't duplicate itself. The seed, the, the orange with the seeds in it can duplicate itself. So what happened in the seeker sensitive mo in the movement is there was a whole group of, of Christians that were kind of discipled in this. And I think that first generation were doing really great. But when the, when that church tried to kind of re uh, to duplicate itself in this next generation of Christians that were growing up in the seeker sensitive movement, there wasn't enough substance of, of seed or word in those instances, oftentimes to be able to disciple and duplicate themselves in the next generation that sort of gave birth to this emergent church movement you know rob bell probably being the most you know um uh, uh distinguished in in the emergent church and certainly we could look at other names you know that are there and so in the emergent church what happened was because there wasn't i think a lot of great foundation laid the the emergent church became known for asking questions 
So we're just going to ask question after question, you know, is God really good? It could Satan get saved, you know, um, you know, what if we've misunderstood this whole LGBT thing? What if, you know, what if scripture says this about, you know, certain topics and there wasn't a lot of answers. It was mostly this uh, sort of, we're going to, we're going to tear down the temple, but they forgot to rebuild it in three days, you know, as Jesus said. And so it was a deconstruction of the church without really establishing it on anything else. That, that though, I, I think in most cases, those individuals, uh, obviously some of them eventually slipped into to liberal, you know, and progressive ideology, but those individuals, I think were really trying to seek the Lord. I think they really, I think that was their intention but I think by this pursuit that they were on and the way that they abandoned the attachment to scripture, they started viewing the Bible as a story of God rather than the word of God. Mm -hmm. And what that opened up the door for was this opportunity for the, what I call the Christian left to arise. And that is a, a derivative of church or this variant of church that really looks, it's like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And it really has very little in common with, with biblical Christianity and it is it is rooted on progressive ideology, left left leaning, uh, you know, kind of radicalism, and it's it's kind of downgraded Jesus from being the savior of the world to being the great social organizer. Mm-hmm. And it's done what I say in the book is he's it's it's exchanged the, the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with this Marxist Trinity of diversity, inclusion, and social justice. Mm-hmm. Wow, there's so much there. But before we go, before we unpack that a little bit more, are, are we in are we in uncharted territory at the church then? Or is this a new phenomenon? Or, you know, has Christianity experienced this before? You know, I think that that's a great question. Um, to some degree, the answer is, is yes and no. So we can look at times in church history that uh, we see some similar things happening. Actually, during uh, the Reformation, uh, with with uh, specifically John Calvin and Martin Luther's influence, I think it was in Geneva that um, the this grace message. And again, a lot of people would know me from you know being a grace guy. So it's it's funny. You know, if you just read the Christian Left, you've not read anything else that I've done. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's somebody that's going to go, "Oh, he's you know he's a bigot or he's this or that." But you know, because I'm really standing on these kind of orthodox Christian you know views. Um, and, but, you know, I mean, my ministry for the last 20 years has been proclaiming the grace of God. The problem is, I think that, you know, we're in a state where a lot of people are in such rebellion. They don't need, it's not grace that they need to hear right now. It's actually, they actually need reined in. And I think that, uh, it's important that we kind of understand, you know, that, that, uh, how to use grace and law as a resource in ministering to people. And there's, there's a time for, you know, uh, utilizing each, what Paul, which what Paul talks about, but, during Geneva, during the Reformation, there was actually a Christian red light district where very similar to what you would see in a place, um, uh, you know, like um, uh, Amsterdam, you know, where it was this total libertine, permissive, you know, uh, kind of sexually expressive uh, district that was sort of set up. And, and the, uh, there was such like this, this reformation of grace that people took that and they went to this absolute extreme. Um, Martin Luther, who, you know, obviously I've, I've benefited from some of his writings. I'm, I'm critical of some of his other, you know, points. Um, but, you know, I don't know as though we'd be here as, as uh, Protestants, you know, without his work. But uh, Martin Luther actually was one time quoted as saying that, you know, I need to go find a great sin or a, or a good sin out there just so I can remind, you know, Satan that, that grace works in my life. You know, essentially implying that he needed to go sin uh, just so, you know, um, the devil would, would realize that he's still righteous, even though he said, you know, and I think some of that stuff might've been tongue in cheek for Luther, but some of his followers took that to heart and they, they actually, you know, acted out on that. And so, um, I think that there's been times in history where we've kind of, the church has, has leaned towards these progressive views and kind of gotten off track for a time. The difference today is that I think that technology and the media and the state, are really working so much hand in hand that it's giving the Christian left an opportunity to uh, to uh, replicate at a much faster rate, and and so I think that is what makes this a little bit more unique, uh, and it's really the first time in the history of the church where what is said within the church building is now open to public 
uh, scrutiny. Mm. You know, Max Lucado just had to apologize or was or was pressured to apologize for things he said in 2004. Mm. You know, you have a guy who's, you know, written over 100 faith books who is apologizing for something he he said, you know, 17 years ago uh, from the pulpit. You know, the pulpit never would have been scrutinized like that before. But because we live in such this sort of reality show type culture where my whole life and everything I've ever said is sort of digitally available for the whole world to see, there is a much more pressure applied to pastors and church leaders from the outside and from the state and from, you know, uh, uh, those that are against it that I think make this, you know, really uncharted waters in many ways for us. Wow. So good. So good. Um, And on that point, Lucas, could I ask you, what would you say to pastors in that place right now? Because um, another, um, prominent pastor leader um, recently said that it's extremely hard to be in leadership. They've been a pastor since the early nineties and they said it's the hardest time that, you know, that leaders are having right now in these days. So what would you say to pastors right now to encourage them how to stand their ground, how to maintain integrity and not be in a sense knocked down or. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you know, I actually I just did a show um, right before this with the Washington Times. And one of the questions that she asked me, she goes, do you ever think you would be in a position where you would apologize for something that you've said in the past? You know, and I and I and it's kind of along those same lines, like, what do we do in these situations? How do we address this? And, you know, and certainly this is a lot of the intention behind this book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church, is that I wanted to give pastors, leaders, and and just, you know, kind of your everyday, you know, God-fearing Christian uh, a roadmap of how to walk through this. And I think, first of all, like, we need to distinguish the difference between apologizing or recanting maybe the way in which I said something, if it's truly wrong, you know, um, uh, and and apologizing for the Word of God. So I'm never going to apologize for the word of God. I can't do it, you know, because uh, it didn't originate with me. I didn't write it. Uh, I believe it. I hold to it. And I believe I have the right to hold to that because I believe it is the truth. Now, um, and that brings us to our, am I being, am I being offensive or is people are, are people offended by the word? Because mm-hmm. if I'm being offensive, that's possible. I'm sure I could find some past messages. And probably after this book releases, I'm sure some of my, uh, some people that would love to see me taken down would, will probably go try to dig up some quotes of mine. And, you know, who knows, there could be something that they could find where I just said it in a way that was off the cuff or casual. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, people didn't think the same way they do now. And so you could kind of say stuff in, in different ways. And it, it wasn't maybe deemed as, as shocking as it is, is today. Um, And so, you know, if, you know, I talk in the book about, you know, maybe those on the right, uh, because I wanted to be, you know, fair uh, against some of the criticisms that I might have, or that scripture might have to those on the right, you know, statements like, you know, uh, you know, you hear this, I've heard multiple people say this, where they go, um, you know, uh, every Democrat is a demon rat, you know, or something stupid Mm -hmm. like that, you know, just hear these like little, you know, kind of meme culture sort of statements, okay? That's that doesn't help anybody. No. And I think if somebody's made statements like that, they should apologize for that stuff. It's not helpful. It it doesn't it doesn't further the cause. But if I'm standing upon biblical values and and you know presenting scripture with what it says, uh, I think that we can say, look, I'm sorry that this offends you. I could see how this would be. I mean, if I was in Max Licato's shoes, I would say, hey, I can understand how this would offend you. I can understand why you might be upset or why you might not want me to come speak, but I am, I, I am a Christian. And as a Christian, I believe in the tenets of scripture. And so I cannot change the tenets of scripture that have been existing for 2000 years that are established on something much greater than myself, you know, at every whim of culture. Otherwise that would make me no longer a Christian. And now the interesting thing is, I don't believe that other religions go through that same pressure. I can't remember the last time somebody challenged a Sikh over what they believed or what the last time somebody challenged a Buddhist or a Muslim over what they believed, uh, you know, from a media standpoint to to dismiss or discount their sacred texts or their sacred teachings. And so, you know, I think pastors need to stand strong. They need to not feel the urge to, you know, have to defend themselves and every single thing. Um, 
and and uh, and and really take time. Don't get into that quick response tweet culture where as soon as somebody criticizes you, you feel like you have to fire something back. It's okay most in most instances, it's okay to sit on something for a day before you respond and really make sure, get some wise counsel around you and really try to sort that through. But don't for one second, you know, go against what the word says or recant your allegiance to scripture or to Christ. I think that is a great mistake. So good. So mm -hmm. good. So what I'm trying to understand though, is it's, you know, you, you have a lot to say about the, the left. What, what would you say to the, to those on the right as well? I mean, we, we kind of are in a, in a whole, in, in our culture, we have kind of like two sides. And unfortunately, that's kind of, we have one side and another side and there's no- It's become a very polarized it, society. You know, <laughs> 100%. So, you know, is, is the left completely wrong and is the right completely right? How, what, what is, how, do, how do you see that? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we're talking very broad stroke here. So there are, um, uh, there are certainly many problems that exist on the right. But let me start by saying that, you know, when I talk about the Christian left, I'm not really necessarily speaking to how someone votes. Uh, there, there's a lot of people who vote right who have actually embraced leftist ideas about God, even without knowing it. You know, they would they would be horrified to realize that they're accepting leftist, you know, progressive ideas about God because they, you know, many cases hate the left so much. But we have people on the left and the right politically that have embraced leftist theology. And that's that's something I try to help sort you know, people through in the book and you know, give them sort of litmus test questions that they can really ask of themselves to see you know, what areas they've embraced this in their life. Um, on, uh, I also believe that although we don't see this as often anymore, that you can certainly be somebody that would consider yourself a liberal or a Democrat in a political sense and be a Christian. And I think that that's not something that you hear from everybody and probably not something you expect from a guy who just wrote a book, you know, really challenging the Christian left, that there is a way that I provide that you can be a Democrat and be a Christian. Now, you know, if you look back 10, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there was there was a large percentage or a larger percentage of pro-life Democrats who still talked about Judeo-Christian values. And now in most cases, those individuals have been pushed out. And they don't exist very often. But even Obama, when he started at, in office and was running, um, ran on saying that he still believed in tr a traditional view of marriage. Now, that went out of the window very quickly. But, you know, he at least ran on that concept. So what's the problems then on the right? The problems on the right are, are this. Um, first of all, you know, uh, Paul makes the comment to Timothy not to uh, basically, you know, give himself to, to make sure and warn the people not to give themselves to godless myths and, you know, uh, controversies and, and genealogies and all these sorts of things. And I think what we've seen on the right this last year is a real fascination with conspiracy theories. And I would put those in that camp, you know, and, and the right, and, you know, we see that through the, the QAnon movement and different things. And, you know, um, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not so familiar with that, that I could say that, you know, every single thing that, you know, QAnon movement, you know, said was, was false or wrong, but I don't have any instances of anything they did say that I think was true. Uh, and so I think that it's important that we, that we really avoid controversies like this and that we kind of run from those things. Um, you know, I don't want to be known as, uh, you know, somebody that subscribes to, you know, uh, something like QAnon, or I don't even want to just be known for my party. You know, I'm a Christian first. I'm not a Republican first. I'm mm -hmm. not a conservative first. I'm not a Trump supporter first. You know, I'm a Christian. And, and there's even other things under being a Christian, I think that, you know, I would identify with, I'm a Christian. I'm an American. You know, I'm, I'm a husband, you know, um, I'm conservative. Yeah. And I can go down the list here, but let's get our priorities straight in this. I think also the insult culture. So one of the things I address in the book is that there's a cycle among the right of what I call worry, anger, apathy. Okay. And I think this would really apply to people that might have family members that they're concerned about or loved ones that they're concerned about that they see drifting into progressive thought. And it starts by worry. You know, I see somebody and let's just say, Dan and I, uh, we have a friend that, you know, we're watching and they're drifting into leftist, you know, thought and all these liberal ideas about God and everything else. So we worry about them. So what do we do? We want to talk to them. We want to counsel with them. We want to see if they'll listen to us. 
And if they don't start listening to us, what typically happens is people will shift into some sort of spiritual manipulation. You know, I'm going to try to guilt you or manipulate you in some way to kind of like, you know, talk them down off this ledge of, of, you know, heresy that they'll start to see it my way. Okay. So it starts with good intentions, but it ends up in a place of spiritual manipulation, which isn't right. That's not how we should do this. And, and when that doesn't work, what that sends people to next is this pattern of anger. And they're mad that this person won't change. Well, I care about you. Why won't you, you know, why won't you stop that lifestyle? Or why won't you agree with me? You know, I have, I have, a, um, you know, a couple of friends right now that they're, they're worried about their kids because of some alternative lifestyles that they're falling into. And so they've gone through this phase of worry and now they're in this phase of anger. Now, if you stay in anger long enough, it starts lending itself to, you know, meme culture and, and Twitter wars and hate statements and all these sorts of things. And I think the right is just as guilty of those things as the left, if not more so in many cases. Um, you know, and I, I see people that have Christian in their Twitter profile, you know, sending tweets out that, you know, uh, start with the F word and, you know, end with Biden and everything else, you know, and it, that, that's no place for a Christian to spend their time or no place for a Christian to live. And I think that we need to, you know, really look in the mirror on those things, mm -hmm. that cycle of anger, if it doesn't produce the results that we want, it eventually ends up in apathy. And basically we come to the point of these people will never change. It doesn't matter what I do. And so I'm just going to quit. And I think that this is actually the most dangerous phase of this sort of uh, cyclical pattern here because I think it's where a lot of the church lives. And I think it's actually what's helped produce the environment for uh, leftism to rise up in the church is because we have an, a church that is so apathetic and has, has really, you know, and you guys have seen this, I'm sure, in talking to people, how many people are really willing to go on that mission trip? How many people are really willing to serve? How many people are really willing to, you know, open up their, their wallet and, and give, you know, to things of the kingdom? And I think that that apathy has reigned in a lot of Christians' lives for some time now. And they just feel stuck. And so, in, and they will stay apathetic until somebody that they care about falls into trouble. And then the cycle starts all over with worry, anger, and apathy. And I present this book a better way and a way to get out of that. Really good. You know, so, so as I'm kind of contrasting this with your, your first book, with Good God, you, you talk about the goodness of God. You talk about, you know, just that you take people into a little bit different image of God um, than they come from traditionally, but then now you also kind of have written this next book called, that kind of brings people in. You kind of have a, you kind of have a balance, you know, you're kind of trying to make sure that we don't go off the ledge either way. And I, I really like in your book, I'm going to read this real quick and I want to hear your comment. Yeah. Um, but there's a couple of paragraphs that really stood out to me about balancing in these perspectives in your book. And I, I want to read this. It's called, it's for, the cipher to all of this is to look for the paradox. Too often Christians feel the need to choose grace or truth, left or right, amnesty or open borders, say nothing or say everything. But more often than not, the truth is in the paradox or in the union of two seemingly contradictory views, like a string on a guitar. Truth is aligned properly by the tension created by seemingly opposing points working together to produce a harmonious note. You can love the sinner and hate the sin. You can help the alien and the stranger and advocate for legal immigration. You can compassionately acknowledge the reality of racism while empowering individuals to overcome beliefs that create entitlement and promote victimhood. That's so good because you, 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 you demonstrate that balance that yes, it, you, you can believe this way, but there's also other perspectives and, and Christianity is not left or right. It is not Democrat or Republican. And I love how yeah. you, you create that balance. Yeah. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, the most important thing for our Christianity is that it's biblical and, and that it is Christ focused. Now the question is what is Christ like? And we hear, you know, there's all sorts of people telling us that Christ has more in common with Marx than, than, you know, uh, with maybe the Republican party today. And I think all sorts of foolishness that's out there and extremism that's out there. Um, you know, this idea of, of truth is in a paradox and that, that, uh, that concept was originally something that was shared, um, uh, not in this context, but just the concept in general from another mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Jim Richards, who I think just, you know, has done a great job kind of speaking on some of those topics. Um, but, you know, within Christianity, we see, we see a gospel that is 100% inclusive and 100% exclusive at the same time. And, you know, the left only wants to focus on the, the inclusive side of it. It is, um, 
you know, they want to talk about acceptance. They want to talk about, you know, uh, you know, kind of all of their their buzzwords of diversity and social justice and these different things and kind of what they mean by that uh, and kind of their own lingo. Uh, the problem is Christianity is inclusive and exclusive. So what do I mean? It's inclusive in the fact that uh, Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. Uh, every single person that's ever lived on this planet, Jesus died for. Um, but it's exclusive in the fact that in in setting up kind of this this uh, the laws that govern salvation, for lack of a better term, um, the there is a principle, and it is it requires faith in order to be saved. And so, faith specifically in Jesus's work on the cross. Uh, you know, Steve Harvey uh, recently came out in an interview that I saw and and stated that he thinks there's multiple ways to God, and just you know he kind of compared it to uh, different you know there's lots of stations on, and all of them lead to entertainment. You can watch one station and get this, and one station and get that, and he kind of talked about all the different roads and stations, so to speak, within religion that can lead to God, and how he never he didn't think that one station was going to be the only way that we'd get there. And you know these things obviously go in contrast to Jesus's teachings, and so it's important that we see that that Christianity is is it's full of love and it's full of truth. It's inclusive. It is exclusive. Um, you can stand for justice and righteousness, and you can also celebrate grace and mercy. Uh, the moment that you only pick one side of the paradox, you lose the harmony that I think Christianity offers. Um, you know, uh, Dan, I know you're a, you're a musician. And so, you know, if, if you went through and, uh, you know, cut, uh, cut the the piano wires all on one side you know that piano is probably not going to play some very nice notes if it plays anything at all you know if you did that on a guitar you know i mean it, it you you lose the ability to play those notes and so um i think it's not about balancing law and grace it's about realizing that the gospel is 100 grace and 100 truth at the same time and you can't have the full scope of the gospel without one of those halves, if you will, um, of the equation. And so, um, you know, within this book, I really try to offer that, um, that paradox in a way that maybe people haven't seen before, uh, and for them to really, uh, to equip them to, to, you know, with, I don't want to just say arguments because I don't want to weaponize people. This book is not about weaponizing the right against the left. And, you know, it's got a spicy cover and it's got this, you know, bright, you know, bright red Marxist red on the cover of it with this uh, Christian socialism symbol, um, you know, which is the, the um, and this is, this is actually used by Christian socialists. I didn't make this up. Uh, it is a, it is the, the communist sickle with a tilted cross uh, is the Christian socialist symbol that's on the book. And, you know, but I don't want to weaponize people just against the left. I want to equip them to be able to discern truth, um, to deflect lies, and to win people over for the sake of the gospel, but to do that in love. And I think that that's really, you know, the, uh, uh, the mandate, you know, that this book offers uh, and just that personal sacrifice that it requires, you know, to really walk in, in, in a love that's at all worthy of resembling how we see, you know, Christ uh, live in scripture and, mm. and certainly how he leads us today. So great. So for our listeners, so many of them want to, you know, see God do things in them and through them. They want to, they're active in their church. They're active in their own ministries. They uh, are active in reaching out to communities through different organizations. Um, what insights would you give to them? How, what would you say for them to be on the lookout to help discern uh, if their ministry or their church is, is starting to kind of drift left? Yeah. So, you know, I, I tell the story um, in the book of, of, I think that, I think this is just a great illustration for, you know, what we have to be on the lookout for today is um, King Solomon, who's known as the, the wisest man to ever live and obviously authored, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Proverbs and, and you know, um, Ecclesiastes as, as well. And so um, in scripture, the very first case that he tried that's recorded in the Bible, uh, it, it says that, that two prostitutes came to him that lived in the same house. They each had a child. In the night, one of the women had rolled over on her baby and accidentally suffocated it. And so she got up in the middle of the night when she realized this and she traded her, um, her child that had been killed and she put it in the bed of the other woman. And she took that woman's baby and took it into her own so that 
the, the her, basically her roommate would have this dead child and wake up to it and that she would have the alive child. So when the other mom woke up, of course, you know, she sees this child, she recognizes that, that just this child in her bed that is that's been killed is not her own. She sees the other woman with this child that's alive, that's hers. So they go before King Solomon. And basically, they both claim to be the true mother. And I think we have a very similar situation today where we have the Christian left, and then we have this more historic biblical version of Christianity, both claiming to be this herald of the truth, both claim to uh, to be the curator of you know uh, the gospel and God's mission on, on this earth. And there is the world is now in the position of King Solomon trying to judge between uh, which which version of the church, if you will, is the true mother. And and the interesting thing here, Solomon, in all of his wisdom, he sees these women and he does the one thing that nobody else would think to do. He goes, there's only one solution. Bring me a sword. We're going to cut this child in half and we're going to give half to this mom and half to this mom. And then the case is over. Now, of course, the true mother falls down begging for the king's mercy and says, don't kill my child, she can have him. And what we see is that the true mother is never willing to raise a sword to what, what I'm calling here in this analogy, the child, um, because it would rather have it, you know, uh, live on than dissect it in any way. What the, the illustration I want to bring here is the baby, I think, in this analogy for us today is the Bible. And those within the Christian left have no problem dissecting scripture, cutting away verses, uh, cutting away entire books, entire ideas, entire themes in order to be able to, um, you know, have a piece of it to claim their spiritual, you know, eliteness and, and superiority. Um, where those, I think, that are standing upon biblical Christianity recognize that the word of God is never something to be divided, never something to be added to or taken away from. And I'm going to do whatever I can to ensure that that word remains intact. And so I think that somebody who wants to know whether or not they're in a church that's maybe leaning left, or they're in a church that's given their thoughts to this, how is scripture handled? Is scripture still read? Is it still utilized? Is it still offered from the pulpit? Um, is it is it presented in any way? And I think also, um, you know, to ask other hard questions: How is marriage viewed? How is how is uh, how are abortion issues and pro life issues dealt with? Is the church pro life still? Um, you know, how is uh, um, you know what's the church's stance on LGBT issues? And really begin to look at this. And so I kind of provide a roadmap and some additional questions that I think individuals can kind of walk through to really see has their church or the ministry that they support been um, invaded by this sort of progressive or liberal thought. Wow, great analogy. Mm -hmm. Great analogy. Yeah, I, so I've read through the uh, kind of the pre-release of the book. Great book, so insightful, so, uh, so timely for our culture. The, when does the book relate? When does the book release? So the book is available now for uh, for uh, pre-order, for purchase on virtually every platform, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, ChristianBooks.com, certainly some others. We're, we're getting ready to launch a brand new website at LucasMiles.org. There's currently our old site there that they can go to. Uh, the book will eventually be available uh, on that as well. Uh, and any pastors out there that you know sometimes want to get cases or want to find you know maybe bulk orders, they can certainly go through us on that too. But you know Amazon is, is a great place and probably the most convenient for a lot of people. Uh, and you know we, the book is currently hit number one on Amazon in three different categories uh, since we've announced it. It releases on May 4th. So you can pre-order it now. Um, you get it in your, your cart, you buy it just like you buy everything else, and it will ship the day that it releases. So if you pre-order it now, you'll get it on the very first day, on the very first run of it coming out. Uh, that way you get it in the queue. And that helps me as the author to really be able to get those numbers before it comes out uh, uh, for you know all these author lists and statistics that publishers look at and, and likewise. So I appreciate... Uh, you know, just the opportunity to share about this. It's, I think this is one of the most important topics facing the church today. And I think that most pastors, most Christians are completely ill-equipped to be able to deal with what's coming and really in many cases, what's already here. And I, I really hope that this book is going to be, um, 
uh, just a companion piece that they can kind of reference multiple times to kind of help them guide them through the process and give them material that they can share with others uh, to really help avoid, you know, uh, it's, it's more than just our country being at stake. Now the foundations of the church are at stake. And I think that that's an even scarier thing. And so uh, I think it's time for the church to wake up and would love to encourage them to grab a copy of, of this book, The Christian Left. Listeners, if you're not following Lucas uh, already and you're, you're not aware of him, uh, you should be. He is a voice for this generation, and uh, he has so much wisdom, wisdom beyond his years. Lucas, how can, we, how can, how can our listeners connect with you? Yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty active on social media. Um, so you can find me at Twitter at, uh, at Lucas Miles. I'm on Facebook at, at Mr. Lucas Miles. Also Instagram at, at Mr. Lucas Miles. And that's MR Lucas Miles on both of those. Um, uh, I had a parlor account before that disappeared. I'm sure at some point I'll be back up on on that. And um, uh, also I, I'm, I'm trying to post daily videos at TikTok. I kind of fell out of rhythm the last couple of weeks with all the press that I've been doing. Uh, but I've been answering questions about Christianity on TikTok. And I think it's, um, uh, I think I'm just at Lucas Miles uh, there as well. And they can find me. And, and that's been a fun platform and uh, been a nice kind of Christian community and, and uh, uh, that, I've, that I've joined here just recently. So any of those work and they can always uh, reach out to us um, at my website, lucasmiles.org, if they're interested in speaking opportunities or anything like that. Sure. One more parting piece of wisdom for, for our listeners who are in ministry or, or contemplating ministry or contemplating trying to, to reach out uh, using their gift into the world. How, what would you say to, to people that are kind of trying to reach into the nations now? Mm. I think that it is important to take the time to equip yourself. The world is changing so, so fast. And two things can happen. If you go to, if you rush the process of building your platform or trying to, you know, kind of quote unquote, make it in this life that you're wanting to live, whether it be, you know, a ministry or a platform, or you're trying to write a book or whatever, you can really rush and skip some steps in this. Um, you know, Jesus talking about the, uh, um, you know, kind of the sowing of seeds, he, he says that it goes, you know, first, you know, first this, you know, the blade, and then, the, you know, we have the, 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 the ear and then the full, you know, the full head. And, and, you know, we see a process to the growth of, of fruit. And I think it's important that we don't skip steps. Here's what can happen if you do. One, um, I think if you skip certain steps, you can find yourself in a place to where you're not ready for the attacks that are going to come against you. And in our culture today, those attacks are great. And obviously cancel culture, you know, hate speech, all these sorts of things against Christians. I think the second, the second part of it is you can actually kind of drift into territories um, because you're looking to fix yourself to somebody that can help your dream get fulfilled or help you reach this goal that you have in ministry. And you can rush and make allegiances with people that maybe um, are not truly going in the same direction as you. So don't be afraid of the long journey. Life is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, use the passion that you have to go do it right now to work on what you need to today so that you can do this, not just for five years, not just for 10 years, but for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I think that longevity in ministry is really a lost art. Uh, but I think it really requires, it requires balance. It requires some great allies, some great counsel. Uh, but I'm confident that you got a wise listening audience out there that's going to take these steps to really equip their heart and, uh, and, and walk in the word. So good. Thank you so much for sharing that. Absolutely. Yeah, that is absolute gold. Lucas, great to have you. Mm -hmm. Author of The Christian Left. Go get a copy. Fourth of May, the, the, the Quattro de, de Mayo over there. Uh <laughs> <laughs> or if you're a Star Wars fan, it's May the 4th be with you. Uh, yes. I think it's that, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Thank Lucas. Thank you. It was, it was a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Good luck on your new book.